Hey everybody, Chibi here. Before we get into today's conversation, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for showing us that you care about poetry and getting to know more poets across this country. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please make sure to hit that subscribe button, share these episodes, tell a friend, rate and review us wherever you can. And if you want to know more about the things and the initiatives that we are putting in place, you can look us up on Facebook at The Blah Poetry Spot. That is B-L-A-H, The Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook or Write Art Out on Instagram. That's W-R-I-T-E-A-R-T-O-U-T, Write Art Out. Thank you so much, and without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another edition of the Black Poetry Spots Presents Words and Shit, uh, where we have a conversation with a different poet every week so that you can get to know the person behind the poetry. I am joined by my illustrious co-host, the one and only San Antonio Taco Poet, Eddie Vega. Hey, 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 what's up? And just FYI, I'm actually Taco Poet of Texas now. Oh. Uh, limiting myself to just San Antonio. Uh, I, I thought I'd stretch out. You know. He's legit now, all of Texas. All right. All Any taco that's ever been made needs to pass through Eddie's mouth in order for it to get the <laughs> thumbs up or the thumbs down. Okay. Some of that. Some of that. <laughs> Something like that. So excited to have you here. So excited for another conversation. This is honestly one of the highlights of my week where we just get to shoot some shit with a phenomenal writer and poet every single week. Uh, Eddie, 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 who do yeah. we have on roster? We have, I mean, I know it's a black blank screen right now, but it should be, we should be seeing Roscoe Burnham, who's out of Richmond, Virginia. He's an award-winning spoken word artist, published author with a passion for processing trauma and circumstance through heartfelt poetry, corny jokes, and sometimes amusing anecdotes and commentary. And his uh, latest thing um, is called Traumedy, and it's available on Amazon Prime. So uh, you need to check that out. Definitely check that out. Um, you know, you should check it out. I have already checked it out, but after the show, you're definitely going to want to check that out. Uh, we, of course, know R Roscoe because uh, we've been seeing him uh, at Southern Fried Poetry Slam the last, I don't know how many years. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, um, I don't know if Roscoe realizes this or not, but one of the videos that we have of Chippy, myself, and Rooster from doing group piece finals at MPS 2017, Roscoe's turnaround backwards cap is right in the middle of that video. So I know he was in the front row. Um, and I also remember that because he was trying to distract me as we got on stage and I haven't forgotten that. <laughs> We've not forgotten. We don't forget the South. Roscoe, where are you at? There's your beautiful face. Hey. How are you doing? You joining us from Virginia, yeah? Yeah, yeah. All the way out here on the coast. How's the East Coast treating you these days? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, been better <laughs> but um it's, it's been cool this has been a different experience and uh one that i'm still getting used to yeah yeah i think we're all trying to adapt uh pivot and just make the most out of what we got during these crazy right. times why don't we kick it off like we kick it off every week and just hand it over to the poet to do what you do best all right roscoe everybody 
All right. Um, so, hey, everybody uh, on the interwebs and such. And I'm really, really happy to be here and I'm happy to talk craft and life and um, and quarantine and life after quarantine and all that. Um, so anybody who knows knows me knows that fatherhood is, is a large part of, of who I am. And uh, uh, it's definitely saturated my life now with the kids being home day in and day out. Uh, I say that to say, if you if you want a teenager and a three-year-old, I have two that I'm giving away. <laughs> uh, I love being a dad um, and I've learned a lot of things uh, in the midst of fatherhoods. So um, here's, a, here's a couple. So aerodynamically, the bumblebee should not be able to fly. His, his body is too big. His wings are too small. But it goes on anyway because the bumblebee doesn't know that. I'm not sure who put the fear of falling into my family, but it is all they passed on. Convinced that adversity is a bear that will swat you into the grass. We weren't meant to fly, they say. Now I've been tasked with raising a queen and the parenting advice that I receive is to caution my daughter that dreams are too big, that life is too small. The possibility she'll never take flight is too great. Play, play it safe. They're advising to do what they did to me, the young bumblebee ready to grab life by the antenna sip upon nectar from outside of this monotonous garden i remember the first time i was stung punctured my promise right inside the colony my family had squashed my visions of stardom but i learned later that it wasn't their fault that their family had clipped their fluttering aspirations when they were just a larva stay inside the hive you will thrive more if you just get a good job and you make a lot of honey i laughed I, I laugh, but flat with vigor to my next blossoming passion. Poetry strapped to me like pollen, brought it back to my elders, and they stared with a thousand premature judgments in their lenses. They don't know what all that fuss is about. They, they don't know what all that fuss is about, but I plead that when you are flying, life is seen in an array of colors, and life ain't always so black and yellow. The world is so big. Their goals were too small. They gotta, you gotta aim high above rain clouds to avoid wet wings. So I journeyed on a turbulent path, reconditioning my mind to remember that I am no, I am no dragonfly, but I span just enough to stay afloat. And my baby girl, she's a chip off the old stinger. She's all venom and optimism, testing the air with hopes that get so high that you could pack it up in a dime bag and sell it. And I won't drown her in their doubt or scare her into thinking that she could leap from the branch, but she ain't guaranteed to catch a draft. Shoot, she might even crash. Forget that. I look a square in the innocence. I tell her to soar like no bug before you. You don't have to be a firefly to look like a star. You go to altitudes only the sparrows brag about. You touch God's eye. You show Icarus what he did wrong. And when you make it back, there are plenty of flowers in the field. You find which scent works for you and you be whatever you want to be. And should anyone ever tell you otherwise, state it very plain. So the insect-sized mind can understand and say the bumblebee's body, it is too big and its wings, well, they are too small and it shouldn't be able to fly, but destiny doesn't know anything about aerodynamics. So uh, there's that. And, um, you know, I think a lot about like my own childhood and um, the impact that uh, uh, my surroundings has had on me um, and how that's transformed over time uh, and how this uh, impacted me over time. And um, so recently there is this uh, amazing artist uh, named Tank, uh, who's uh, back on Team Snow, um, early Team Snow years and years ago, and now has gone on to be a Grammy nominated artist 
uh, with, a, with her own band. And um, she recently uh, posted or um, released a song dedicated to one of my favorite artists. Uh, and so I had this piece that I had been sitting on for a little while and hadn't really shared it much. Um, uh, I just didn't feel like it was in the right place, but recently uh, it's kind of, um, kind of gotten some legs under it. And uh, it really speaks to um, my association with culture, with music, with, with hip hop, with, um, um, and with life now uh, as an artist. I stopped arguing over who is the GOAT to groups that wanted to herd in greatness but never heard you the way that I did. Of course you are the greatest of all time, but you're better than GOAT. You are hip hop's unicorn. Whimsical anomaly, only true believers can see, appearing now only as a guest in song just to prove you are still real. To be black man with bars while breaking the bars of expression and identity. So thank you, Andre 3000. Thank, thank you, Andre 3000, for giving voice to black boys who didn't fit inside the trap. Or too bright colored for the block, too nigga for a white house, too eccentric for a Morehouse, unraveled artsy black boy that couldn't be stitched into hoods and baggy jeans, or a suit and a tie, or a body bag and a stereotype. Rather be turbans and wigs, camo, crochet, and kilts. Now I will watch my brother bark out the latest DMX hits, grit his teeth in the mirror. I would look at my reflection and attempt to snarl, just like him, but my reflection, my reflection replied with a spody odi dopalicious trumpet, like a I'd watch these brothers push Cadillacs and Coke, was told I didn't fit inside the puzzled existence of thugs and dealers and niggas who carried weight of society in their clips. And Anytime that I tried to skip school, dudes would detour me away from the corner. They'd be like, yo, take your corny ass to school. Don't let me find you in these streets. Yo, 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 y'all right there? Yo, right there? Yo, that's that smart nigga with the poems. He weird, but he all right, though. I fuck with him. And from all those bass-heavy Chevys, your, your verse would play. And those same guys, these same guys would say, yo, Andre, Andre 3000? Yo, that's that smart nigga spitting poems. He weird, but he all right, though. I fuck with him. <laughs> and I felt seen. I was too, I too was psychedelic prints and handmade garb. My hair wrapped up and scribed abstractions in my notebooks. And sometimes y'all, sometimes the poems would sound like the trajectory of a bullet's journey. And sometimes it would be my, my journey as a bullet from a Cupid Valentino or a love letter to a heartbreak or a broken version of me. Sometimes it would sound like Hamlet. Either way, something would die at the end. My stories felt extraterrestrial among humans and I found aliens from the planet of Atlanta. And while Big Boy gave us the gritty, gritty rip of a staccato pimp, Andre morphed into the awkward palette. The art of storytelling made me feel like the first frame in a gallery. I played elevators when I was buried by my failures. I played the whole world whenever I felt alone. Roses became the soundtrack to my divorce. You, Andre, serenaded me back to life softly as if you played piano in the dark or flute in the airport, a Pied Piper for the outcasted black boy, God MC to the hip hop heads without a deity. And for you, for me, for me, you have always been the best alive, even when you try to deny, and even if you aren't the one, you are always 
prototype. So um, culture and music and uh, uh, has always played a large, a large role um, in my art, um, in my in my life, in my identity. Um, I think it speaks to uh, people of color in general, and uh, you know, but as as a black person living in America, um, music was sometimes like all we had um, to to hold on to our identity and, and to express ourselves. And we've seen it change over time. We've seen uh, black people create these genres, these amazing genres of music, and have them kind of snatched away um, from by people who don't always have an appreciation for it. And but we still keep creating. You know, that's the beauty of of um, kind of being really a person of color in America in general is this, this uh, unyielding resili resilience. Jazz singer Ma Rainey said, you know, white folks hear the blues come out, but they don't know how it got there. So I present to you a timeline of history and music. We went from drum call to call for freedom, from plucking on banjos to bondage on a ship, from Jim Bays to Django, we are survivors. Here we are, crashed like symbols on the soil of tobacco, cotton, sharecropping fingers, fingers, coarse like their hair, coarse like the lashes on their back, coarse like their pain, harmonizing the key of trauma, traumatized to the harm of being a minority, looking for the freedom notes. The slave song rebellion anthem mapping north like a Union soldier's bugle, singing a Negro spiritual like, and the same fingers, the same fingers that have been plucking the necks of blues and folk guitars were the same fingers that have been plucking tear-soaked ropes from their necks. Who but us? Who but us? Who but us could unravel a noose and turn it into an instrument? Go through hell and make gospel like fire, shut up in the bones of a burning cross and baptize themselves in a colored fountain. I mean, who, who but the Negro could fry up a Jim Crow and feed a nation revolution to the century, to the symphony of the Iron Hand bigot called America and the pop of gunshots like police batons and snares, snare justice in the teeth of police dogs. Who, who but the, who but colored folk could find rhythm in a riot, make a Motown out of a march. And when the soul need a break beat, we base boom and crack walls, crack glass ceilings, while crack babies getting born in a concrete existence. And we, we're force fed experimental drugs gone viral or viruses gone viral. Shoot, now we all trying to go viral for the views. And we, we pump up the volume and the veins. Who but blacks could use needles to spin back the hands of time and scratch the surface of a broken history? Who? but descendants of slaves. Now only slaves to a rhythm could take centuries full of suffering and make genres full of joy and rising sounds. Sounds like black notes on a white page. They wanna know how it got there. We've always taken all the off key we've been given to make a resilient medley. And they say that you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. Well, when you are children of the drum, People can stop the heart, but they can never stop the beat. All right, so I don't want to um, take too much time, and I want to talk to to Eddie and Chibi. Um, so uh, I got one more piece, um, a piece that I rarely ever do, and um, uh, but I wanted to get a chance to air this out um, to today because uh, I haven't done it since Southern Fried. Um, and so in the theme of talking about culture and music. Um, um, and rhythm, and uh, there's an artist, um, Louis Armstrong, who has uh, was a huge influence 
uh, in my early, you know, my early life. I, I love jazz music, and he's one of the greatest. Uh, and it made me think about some of the things that he had to experience growing up in um, Jim Crow South and being one of the first, like, really successful Black artists to do so, and why he didn't really speak on uh, racism as much as people would have liked him to. Um, uh, you know, but that, I imagine there's a lot of things you have to consider um, as a person of color when a time at a time where lynching was pretty much still legal um, and, and suffered no consequence. So um, here's this. <clears throat> so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, Louis Armstrong. They get their thrills on Blueberry Hill. You know, I remember uh, when Jim Crow hatched, came picking on the flesh of colored folk in my lifetime. I didn't see more burning crosses than churches and more burning churches than I've seen good white Christians. But I played, I played when they asked me to play and that's how I stayed alive, how I survived. I just wanted to make music, not waves. I was already well over 50 and frightened by the time they drowned Emmett, but I had seen a hundred bright, I had seen a hundred bright-eyed boys way before his mangled beauty made the news. They get their thrills on Blueberry Hill. They tell me I should have said something, sang songs about our people and breaking chains. Black folks said I smoked too much on that reefer and two-stepped for massa. Those revolutionaries in the 60s said I had been shucking and jiving. But in the 20s, we called it making a living. We called it living to play for tomorrow. I got friends that died in the dead of night, seen bulging eyes of Negroes on a Mississippi mountaintop, just swinging in the breeze, face blue and swollen. Why you think they called it Blueberry Hill? Mm, that fruit won't sweet. Well before Billy made it a supple tune. What was I supposed to do? Resist? Riot, I mean, in the middle of New Orleans. I was born turn of the century in the South that could put a, that could still put nigger on your birth certificate. I was scared, had every reason to be. Show me a man that ain't never been afraid and I'll show you one that's six feet in the grave. I mean, killing a Negro won't even a crime in America yet. Seems like you still having trouble with that today. They wear badges now. In the 60s, they wore hoods. When I was a boy, they just wore a smile. I smoked nearly 12 joints a day. I had to stay high because the blows will bury you and that Mary Jane will take your pain away. Hello, Dolly, this is Lewis Dolly and I am proud of all the things that I didn't do, but I had two kids I wanted to watch grow old. The horn, the horn was my act of resilience, my act of resistance, resisting the rope, resisting the mob, wondering why we can't just all get along, roll up one and make beautiful music. I mean, that's the reality I wanted to live in. It's the reality I chose to believe. The reality I sung to myself until the day that I passed. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yeah. That that last piece and it was awesome. That Louis Armstrong piece is one of my favorite too. Uh, heard I think the a lot of the songs that I know, jazz songs that I know, the first versions that I know were actually Louis Armstrong versions. You know, so like the first ever uh, time I heard um, "Baby It's Cold Outside" is actually the Louis Armstrong version of that that he did. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, he's just one of my favorites too. Do you think there's more? of a jazz influence in your poetry or of a hip hop influence? Um, 
I you know I think it depends on what mood I'm in at the time. <laughs> at the time, I think I think hip hop has probably had the the most current impact on um, on my craft and and what I listen to to kind of put myself in the zone. Um, but I still listen to like a lot of jazz mm-hmm. um, just when I need to chill, when I need to relax, when I need to study. Um, I'm a um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of a, of a few different musicians and some of the classics, and uh, so it, it it varies for me. It's a lot of up and down. Yeah, because I think you you really can't have one without the other. You know, like this this improvisation kind of feel that like came out of jazz. You know, is so very much alive in in hip hop, and you know, like flying off the cuff and just kind of like letting your emotions take you where they take you. You know, so right. That's, that's very much so. So music definitely has a, a strong influence on, on your writing and probably you as a person, I assume, yes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, music is, was, was driving me for a, a really long time. I mean, even before I really wanted to be a poet, I wanted to be a, like a, I wanted to be like a hip hop artist or, or a songwriter. That was really what my goal was coming out of high school. Like I was working with bands, I was trying to put out music. Like I was, I was doing a bunch of stuff before I was like really taking poetry seriously. Yeah, yeah. So I'd really love to have like a, a serious in-depth conversation about like hip hop and the state of hip hop and what it was and what it is and what it can be. Uh, but I am in no way capable of having this conversation. I think I ready <laughs> too in our. Uh, limited knowledge because I mean you know in the 90s I was listening to Celine Dion okay like we'll just put it that way uh so we are going to bring in real quick for this conversation our uh hip-hop correspondent all the way from the (laughs) of San Antonio this is uh Paul Paul I'm trying to unmute you bro sir hey what's going on fam it's funny hey Jimmy it was saying um the host wants to unmute you and I'm like Oh yeah, maybe I should push this button. Maybe you should push the button, Paul. Maybe I should push the button. So, uh, first of all, what's good, fam? How you doing? I've been great, man. How you feel? Man, I'm good. Can't complain at all. Yeah, Chibi was like, "Hey, let's talk hip hop." I don't know hip hop, uh, so <laughs> let's talk hip hop. Um, here's what question, and I know that you're used to this question if you're a hip hop head. Oh, I would. You, I'm not even gonna ask top five artists. Top I was gonna say groups. yes, obviously a top five question. Yeah, top five groups, top five groups in hip hop. Where do you stand? Top five groups, just groups. Groups, just mm. groups. Mm. Okay, well the first one is easy, Outkast. Outkast is number okay. one, it's Come always on number one. I knew that, I knew that. <laughs> I, I will fight anybody, I will come to Texas. Like, <laughs> Outkast is always number one. Um, all right, so I'm gonna be. I'm actually gonna try to answer this as objectively as possible, okay. um, uh, without just throwing five of my favorites out there. Um, but based on impact, and Al- and honestly, Outkast still hits number one for me for what they did for like Southern culture and hip hop. Um, so um, that aside, I guess I would really have to slide them to number two if we're talking about impact because N.W.A. and maybe like Public Enemy, N.W.A. or Public Enemy will probably have to be first when we talk about right. like cultural impact. Okay. Um, so let's, let's go, let's go, uh, let's go NWA, Outkast, uh, Public Enemy, Fuji's, Run DMC. Thoughts, Paul? Yeah, I think that's five. I think that was five. 
Run DMC at number five. Is that what you said? Yeah, and here's man. the thing. I, I, here's the thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm going to let you go. This is you. So, look. I Look. So, I can't. I, I, I personally can't accept a list of top five or top ten if you don't mention Run DMC. Uh, and it's because they broke the ceiling. They broke the ceiling for hip hop, right? They were like literally the hottest group. They were the first person to like transition over and like pull in rock fans, um, crossovers with Aerosmith, which was, who was like really hot at the time. Um, they uh, like, you know, one of the first groups to go platinum. Like they they broke the ceiling on on hip hop and transitioning over to like pop culture. You know what I mean? Um, and it was one of the first groups where it wasn't just black music. Right. It was just this it was this group that you saw everywhere. Right. And they introduced us to the Beastie Boys and like their their impact as a whole um, was like undeniable. And, you know, what I mean, you, you could go bar for bar or were they whack, were they corny, were they, you know, whatever. But, you know, at the time they were hot. They were they were the, they were the shit. <laughs> you know, what I mean, um, I don't necessarily put them at number one because there was so much thing. There were so many things that happened after that. Um, so many better things that happened after that. Um, Public Enemy is, is really high for me. I mean, politically, taking that political stance wasn't something that you saw um, as blatant um, as you saw it with Public Enemy. Um, and they did it in a way that was like super conscious, but still like, it still sounded great. Uh, it was super articulate. Like you, you knew where they stood. They made these very relevant points. It was like undeniable. And they just happened to make good music too, right? Um, NWA is like, like it's come on, like it, it literally put right. the West on. Like right. it created the West, the sound for the West. And Outcast, I mean, outside of being my favorite group of all time, um, introduced the hip hop to the South um, mm -hmm. in a way that Ghetto Boys were trying to do, but didn't accomplish as well as Outcast. Would it be safe to say that Outcast introduced uh, the South to hip hop? Right. Like kind of put right. the stuff that, that type of southern culture, um, mm -hmm. that type of southern culture, like, um, and uh, they were able to articulate in a way too that other southern artists weren't. You know what I mean? And, and so, and really, all we knew of the South at that time was like Luke was like Uncle Luke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like that was that was it. You know, it was Miami-based music, it was party music, and nothing else was coming out of that region. And so here comes you know Big Boy and Andre with these like multi-syllabic flows and not only are they talking about like pimp culture, but they're like telling you about they're the first rappers that really talk about the trap and they're they're giving you like they're giving you game and they're dropping jewels and their their content is so diverse and they're taking risk. They were taking like lots of risk in their music. Marissa in the comments said um, that Public Enemy was the more organized and politically correct version of NWA. I've heard that argument before yeah. and I don't disagree. Um, I think NWA was trying to make a political statement sometimes, uh, but not all the time. Um, but, right. but Public Enemy was like very, very true to their stance. Um, sometimes people try to make NWA more political than I think they actually were. Sometimes I just feel like it was five niggas from Compton. <laughs> facts, facts. Uh, I will say this because should be asked like what I thought of the list. One thing that I've learned. Um, and anybody will tell you this as it relates to hip hop, unless you want to have an hour, hours and hours long conversation, when someone gives you their top five, you just nod. 
and say, okay, because anything beyond that would create an argument. He has a really good list, so I'm, I'm not going to argue here, but I probably will send you a message. Uh, I will DM you so we can have this argument later. Um, last question I'm going to yes. ask about just hip hop as a, as a culture. Um, where do you stand on on hip hop now, like as 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 someone who you said earlier, like it influences a lot of your writing. My question is, as of now, where do you stand on current hip hop? So I um, try my best not to be the old man on the lawn shaking his fist. Get off my, you know, get off my lawn. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm not gonna be that old head. I'm not. Um, some music is whack. Right, they, you know, but also whack music has existed since the dawn of time, right? <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a '90s, you know, I grew up on '90s hip hop, um, some late '80s hip hop. There was a lot of whack music then, mm. a whole lot. There was a whole lot of whack music, <laughs> um, <laughs> whack music from people that we loved, <laughs> whack music from from artists that we loved, um, right? And it, so that's always going to exist. So if you focus on that, if you focus on all the whack rappers that exist then hip-hop right now will frustrate you right um but there's a lot of good music happening too there's a lot of dope lyricists that still exist in hip-hop right now right and outside of just the names that we normally hear we're like oh yeah kendrick and cole and you know or whatever there's like more artists you know what i mean like jordan lucas can rap you know what i mean like uh uh vic mensa can rap you know what i mean like denzel curry can rap uh right. These cats can really rhyme. These young boys can really rhyme. That whole Dreamville camp, JID and and you know what I mean, those cats can really rap. The baby and Megan Megan the Stallion can actually rap. I know we, they get a bad rap because it's like mainstream hip hop and they're not really saying anything, but like whatever. It's 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 hip hop. We've been we've been talking about like uh, bitches and hoes and 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 uh, chains and cars since uh, '89. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if you're gonna get mad at these rappers for saying all that stuff, then you gotta get mad at Jay, and you gotta get mad at Kanye, and you gotta get mad at Beanie Siegel, and you gotta get mad at Wu Tang. Like they all done it and said it, right? It's a little saturated on the radio, but radio means nothing anymore. Radio means absolutely nothing anymore. There are so many streaming services. Half these kids aren't even listening to the radio. You know what I mean? So um, yeah. hip hop still exists. Hip hop is still doing lot is is alive and well. And for every Megan Thee Stallion, you have a Rhapsody. You know what I mean? For every uh, Young Thug and Future, you have a Joyner Lucas or you know what I mean? Or uh, or or Joey Badass or you know what I mean? Like you or, or Big Crip, who's like hands down one of my favorite people right now. Um, right. so like there's, there's a balance. There's still balance in hip hop. Old heads just want everything to sound like Nas and that, no, shut up. That's, that's stupid. <laughs> I, I often, I'll, I say this, I often tell old heads when they start arguing, like I can pull two short lyrics from the nineties that sound exactly like the baby lyrics today. And we consider Tupac great. I'm not Tupac, I'm sorry, Too Short. We consider Too Short great. And I'm thinking, I've heard Too Short songs where all he does is cuss. Like that's the whole song, cuss words. Yeah. So, well, uh, yeah. I would like to say thank you to Chibi and Eddie for letting me jump into this interview just for some hip hop questions. Hey. <laughs> Needed to have you there because during the past six minutes, I think there were maybe five names that I actually... <laughs> <laughs> 
a little bit more a little bit more i'm not that bad but it was like the other day i was asked like top three artists of all time and i'm like janice joplin amy winehouse and cody and cambria nowhere near hip-hop or rap you know like just it's not my wheelhouse i don't know i think if janice although shout out to amy around, winehouse because amy winehouse was dope yeah, yeah if janice joplin was around i think she could have like she could have crossed into some hip-hop stuff she could have crossed over she had the life she had the a blues background, you know. I think she could have. She could have handled it. Shout out to uh, Aerosmith for introducing me to Run DMC. You know. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> See what I'm saying? You know that what I mean? Cultural impact, yo. That's huge. Mm-hmm. No, that, that that entire move that that when they came together, that was a big because they pretty much told the rest of the world, like, hey, this hip hop stuff, this rap stuff, is something you should listen to. It's legitimate. And we're gonna play alongside yeah. them live, as opposed to them just sampling our stuff. Mm-hmm. I think they right. really, really helped to put a stamp on them. I think that was in that you know when yeah, they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was like a big deal. Uh, I remember back, back, way back when that uh, that that influence. Yeah, man. Yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Well, thank you, Paul, our official hip hop correspondents, for joining us for this part <laughs> of the conversation. Because otherwise, <laughs> it just would have been me and Eddie being like, "Sure, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> if you say so <laughs> uh roscoe one more question i think i saw on, on we were there were a, we were on a thread on on facebook about um whether or not uh there were i think 10 hits from will smith <laughs> yeah will smith has 20 hits I, i'd have to go find mm-hmm. them but the, but he had he's got 20 he's got 20 somewhere he could do a versus he's got 20 hits Wild Wild West, Jim West, Desperado, <laughs> no, you don't want nada. That's all I got. I'm sorry. I don't know if they're all good hits, but they're there, though. <laughs> I'm going to stop embarrassing myself. Let's no, Chibi, Chibi, we're going to have a long conversation. I'm logging off now, but I, I'm going to see you soon, and we're going to have a long conversation about what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> I expect nothing but an ass whooping. All right. <laughs> All right, let's move on, you know, before we get heavy, because, you know, like, let's, let's be real. Um, If we look at your poetry, and a lot of the work that you put forth, you talk about heavy subjects, you know, because it's, it's information, it's stuff that needs to be talked about, right? Uh, And not talking about it further uh, pushes the stigma of the topics, right? Um, But before we get into that, let's talk about something that was all joy and love and fantastic. And that's the sitcoms of the 90s and the early 2000s. All right. Yes. (laughs) Where are you with that? Why is that? Why is that something you want to talk about here tonight? So listen, I um, so uh, so I, I recently released this project called Traumedy. And um, it's it talks about a lot of uh, like traumatic experiences. It talks about mental health. Uh, it talks about culture. Um, and and so the poems are really heavy. And then there's jokes. There's like jokes in between. There's like it's like legit. Like you know my first filmed you know ver, you know stand up special, mm-hmm. um, or at least my attempt at it. And, and so comedy's played like a huge part in in really just in my personality. My you know my wife and my kids will tell you like that it's ninety percent sarcasm. Um, that's the, that's our second language here at the house. You know what I mean? Like we're, it's like my daughter and my daughter is the worst one. Uh, <laughs> I got a teenager. She, I got a teenager. She's thirteen. Oh, oh, yeah. You're just starting. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. My daughter's 19. Like, no, this is. Oh, just man. The That's right. I feel you got grown babies. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it just. Um, so the, the sarcasm is real. The sarcasm is very real. And I like I attributed that to watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and watching Seinfeld growing up. You know what I mean? And uh, yo, man, like uh, watching Friends and Living Single and uh, Malcolm in the Middle um, and all these like super funny, uh, super funny like, like television sitcoms. I mean, that was how I spent pretty much my entire day after school. Um, and, and it was such great, it was such like, I mean, some of those, I mean, some of those shows should have probably never, never been made. Not the ones I named, but they were definitely like shows that came that were like, mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't have had your own show. <laughs> like at one point they were just giving like any comedian their own show. And I was like, okay, this is too much. <laughs> um, I've heard, but, yeah. uh, go ahead. Eddie. I mean, I'm, I was, I was, I mean, I'm kind of like, I'm just out of curiosity. I've heard some people say that e- everyone is either a friend's person or a Seinfeld person. Are you on that? Are you you follow that, or are you uh, you're like no? Well, there's room for everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I think if you are white, then you're either a Seinfeld person or a Friends person. I think if you were black, you were either a Friends person or a living single person. <laughs> I've also, I've also they were kind of the same. <laughs> I've also heard you know, and this is for my my theater nerds out there that uh, Seinfeld is the waiting for Godot of, of sitcoms where it's the show where nothing happens twice. You oh know? yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was literally a show about nothing. I mean, I, you know, Seinfeld jokes about that even, even now. Like, I mean, it was, it was, it was. I mean, it was just a day in the life of like mm. middle-class white people in New York. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that was it. Like, that was it. That was the whole show. <laughs> there was no story arc at all. <laughs> but it, it, uh, it was just dry it was dry humor and one-liners yeah it found a way to infuse this humor into everyday life right where like people could see themselves and were like oh that happened to me the other day you know like a way to just like be able to like see humor in the most mundane things right so where you would yeah. have some certain sitcoms that like really prided themselves in being this like kind of over the top kind of kind of humor almost slapstick kind of humor Seinfeld took the the complete opposite approach, right? The humor was built into the dialogue. It wasn't about having a crazy story arc. It wasn't about having these, you know, crazy antics or, you know, with a positive message at the end, like a full house or something like that, right? This was just, this was just like conversations you would have with your buddies at a diner. Yeah. And, and that's what made it funny. I mean, it was low, you know, I, I talk a lot of shit, but it was genius. Um, it was genius, and um, and I forget the guy who um, who was like the producer, the creator of it. He went on to to do Kirby Enthusiasm, and his name just escaped me for now. What's his name? Larry David. Larry David, thank you. Um, and and Kirby Enthusiasm is another great example, right? Because it's just it's built around the conversations, and it's it's hilarious, you know. And it's like a very dry wit, you know. What I mean, it's a very dry wine, as the you know. What I mean, like uh, I would say with like you know. Uh, other friends where I can talk uh, elitist snobby retorts about <laughs> about uh, about comedy, but it, it is it's a dry wine, um, and that's and that's the reason why we loved it though. It's the reason why what made Seinfeld a genius. I mean, bar for bar, Seinfeld's stand up is you know just above mediocre at best, but what Seinfeld the show did is uh, it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
curb your enthusiasm too, to a certain extent, if you look at like the people that have uh, come on and talked about it, like half of that shit was just improv. You know, it was one of those things where like, you're just gonna roll with it and that's that's life, right? You know, you just yeah. roll with it and see what happens and maybe you can spin something in a great way. Maybe you just wallow in the bad and then it's like, oh wait, look what happened just over there. Look over there. You know, like it's it's a way of like, just dealing through life and finding ways to still find the humor in even the most, uh, the, the darkest of times, you know, like the, the deepest of times, right. you know, which I think is a fantastic segue into. <laughs> oh, I wasn't done with this. Oh, okay. <laughs> I won't segue. I, was, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about family dynamics in the sitcoms. Okay. And, um, so I was gonna have you compare something, but then that kind of developed into another question. And here it is. And my, I don't know if you want to answer it or not, but can we still talk about episodes of the Cosby Show? All right. So you know, here, here's my the Cosby Show is a is a, is a weird, you know, it, it's 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 a it's a uh, polarizing topic, right? Because we're we're very mad at Bill at, at William Cosby. <laughs> um but you know does that mean that we're we're mad at the huxtables you know what i mean like i yeah, and I, I don't i don't know all the time you know what i mean like I, I i grew up watching what i considered to be the ideal family um at a time where no other family looked like that on television you mm -hmm. know what i mean like there that was it it was them and family matters you know what i mean mm -hmm. um and so, you know, you didn't, we didn't have anything else. And so for that, you know, the, 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 that, the Cosby show is always going to have this like special place in, in my, in my memories, you know what I mean? In my heart. Um, but sometimes it's hard. It's hard to look back at episodes and be like, man, like you're, you're the, you're playing a character, but you're the same person who drugs 60 women. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's, um, it's a different, it's a difficult, it's a difficult topic to address, but, you know, look, I mean, I think, people have to kind of make that decision for themselves. Uh, I'm not going to lie and be like, oh, if I watch, you know, if I, if I saw the Cosby show now that I wouldn't watch it or that I wouldn't laugh at some of the, the stuff that's happening um, because it's more nostalgia than anything. You know what I mean? Nostalgia, but also like what uh, the show did at the time when it was on, you know, right. um, and what, what that contributed to uh, culture and advancement and whatnot, you know? So it is kind of like, it's that constant conversation that we're having between like, do we separate the person from the art, right? right. And can we, can we still watch movies that were made by the Weinstein produ production company, even though Harvey Weinstein is a piece of shit, right? Right. You know, so I think that, that, that is a hard, a hard line to navigate, uh, you know? And it sucks. Thank it you. It sucks because um, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan. Like I love stand up. I love stand up comedy. I while other people are talking about like random things, like random like series on Netflix, I am binge watching stand up special after stand up special after stand up special. Like, that's pretty much all I do. I watch UFC fights and I watch stand up comedy. <laughs> that's, that's like that's it. Um, and. Um, I grew I grew up on it, and so like going back and, and looking at um, 
uh, Bill Cosby on stage in, you know, mid 70s, you know, what I mean, and his storytelling was like, unlike any other like storyteller ever during that time period. And it and like, even the, the jokes now even stand true, like they age so well, but it sucks because I'm looking at the man, like this isn't even like the same conversation as the Huxtables. Like I'm not watching you play a character. Like I'm watching you be you and your thoughts and opinions and your stories on stage. And I don't even know how I feel about that anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, especially when he was at the peak of his career, which is when a lot of, just at being at the peak of his career, you know, especially like, you know, he hit the eighties and I mean, outside of Eddie Murphy, like he was like the, the only black comedian that was popping. You know what I mean? Richard Pryor was dealing with the drug addiction in and out. You know what I mean? He was getting older and, and health was failing. So Eddie Murphy was the new guy. And then there was still Bill Cosby. Um, and Hollywood only makes space for a couple of black faces. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so, and they hated each other. They hated each other with a passion to the, like, to this day. And they, and then, and you saw it, uh, you saw like such different extremes to um, their, in their approach to storytelling, but they were both so brilliant in their own way. And to this day, I don't know if anybody's a better storyteller than Bill Cosby. And that, that, that's what I'm saying. You know, a lot, a lot of, uh... Now, up until all this stuff happened, I would use all those dad stories he had about being a dad and, you know, the one about the chocolate cake and that being a nutritious meal and uh, growing up thinking his name was um, God damn it, you know, God damn it, would you stop that? Um, all that stuff was, <laughs> was great. Um, and then now we've kind of like, and you say he's a great storyteller, there was you know, all that. And, and now it's like you, you can't refer to it like, like you used to. You can't call a, you know, you can't tell somebody, hey, you, you're, what are you, Bill Cosby? Because you're wearing a really nice sweater right now. You know, you can't, right. you can't do some of those things. So let me just. Um, no, now if you, if somebody calls you Bill Cosby, it's, it's, it's a bad reason. <laughs> it's, it's a horrible reason now. <laughs> so let me, let me throw this question out there because I think it's going to say a lot about all of us. And I want all three of us to answer. <laughs> Top two comedy specials. Of all time. Oh, oh man, of all yeah. time? Top two, like, like, like comedy specials, you know, comedy shows, you know, like. You, you, oh, I, you mean not, not, not stand up specials? Stand, yeah, stand up, you know, like t top oh. two stand up comedian comedy specials, you know, like Eddie Murphy Raw or whatever, you know, like what are your, your, what okay. are your top two of all time? Oh man. Uh, top two, top two, top two. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna pull from something very recent because um, he's become one of my favorite comedians uh, within the last few years, and that's uh, John Mulaney. Um, <laughs> John Mulaney is hilarious. I haven't seen him tell a bad joke yet. Um, he has, I mean, all three of his specials are hilarious. I'm gonna go with New in Town. He has a special on Netflix called New in Town. Um, I'm gonna go with that. So for those who haven't seen it, just go watch it, it's hilarious. Um, and, um, uh, let's go with, um, you know what, just for the culture, I'm going to go with Kings of Comedy, just for the culture. Oh, the whole thing. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, then, you know, if I'm going for the culture, then I'm going to go with Latin Kings of Comedy. Comedy. Oh! <laughs> hey! Hey! Because, you know, I'll to be honestly, on, on that one, Paul Rodriguez had been for like, you know, for, for many of us, was like our only comic. And he, and I, I didn't think he was all that funny. Like they were really, really corny jokes. And then when he comes on Latin King, Link Kings of Comedy, all of a sudden he's getting really dirty. And he's saying, you know, he's cussing and stuff. And you're like, 
who is this guy? Oh my God, he actually is funny. It's like they like took the genie out of the bottle or something on him. Um, yeah, that, well, that you know, a lot crazy. of those comics tried to like turn. They tried to turn it down, you know, tune it down because you know that that's the era where people were every time everybody was trying to get a show. You know what I mean? Everybody right. was trying to get a show, and so you had to prove. You know, you kind of had to prove that you could, you could, you know, you could be this PG comic, uh, and, and it wasn't too too gritty or too raw. You know what I mean? Because you know we learned our lesson with uh, Bob Saget, <laughs> who is disgusting. <laughs> That's, that was my next comparison. Yeah, exactly. Like when Bob. Yo, Bob Saget is disgusted. His jokes are the dirtiest, nastiest stuff that you'll ever hear in your entire life. And he was like America's dad. You know what I mean? He was the family. He was yeah. like full house dad. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I, I'm agree with you on John Mulaney. John Mulaney is, is, a, is an amazing writer. I love the way his jokes are written. Because um, he doesn't do yeah. a whole lot up on stage. There isn't a whole. It's just, you yeah. know, the delivery is just kind of deadpan. And and it's his words that are funny, you know. Um, right. Really yeah. Just great storytelling. Like He's like a young special. Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another special that I really like is, uh, and I don't know what it's called, uh, but it's that Richard Pryor one. Uh, right after the accident, he got out of the hospital. All that. I don't know if it's at Fillmore or. Hey, which one is that? That's not Live at Sunset, is it? Uh, maybe it is. It's one where he talks. He's the it first be, thing he's talking about is like shot, so is is the accident, the pre-basing accident, where you know is the first thing he's talking right. about. Um, oh my god! And some of those jokes are like they still hit today, uh, especially about race relations. Yeah. Like they are still relevant, and it's like forty years ago, you know. Um, and, and that that one, the, the first part of that just had me rolling, um, mm. and, and just the, the cultural relevance of it. I think is the other part that I that I love. I've always felt like stories. I've always felt like stand-up comedians and poets have a, a very similar job, uh, and, and and maybe that's why both kind of I love both equally. Um, but it's it's it you know we take what goes on in the world around us, right in the moment, and and we capture it right. We capture it in a poem. We capture it in a joke, um, and then we have to make somebody else feel it. Like however your thoughts and whatever your thoughts and opinions are on it, you got to make the audience feel it in that moment. Right. Um, and there's a special way of doing that within, within spoken word or within slam or whatever. And there's a very special way of doing that in stand up comedy. But I think that's I mean, I think they're like kind of running parallel next to each other. I will say uh, I, I will put in honorable mention since since you said kings of comedy and you said Latin kings of comedy. I'm going to say queens of comedy in my honorable mention, you know moment where like Monique is just saying to bop a skinny bitch on the head. I'm like, bop that motherfucking skinny bitch on the head, okay? <laughs> Meet me one of them skinny bitches uh, for now, developing a dad bod. But top two, uh, <laughs> top two, I think, hands down, uh, Robin Williams live on Broadway. Oh, like, yes. I, I can't not see that without like just hurting, hurting from how much I'm laughing. And then this is gonna show how old and gay I am. Eddie Izzard, Dressed to Kill. Oh, that, that one's amazing. That, that one writing. is the writing and the improv and just like Eddie Izzard was on, he was one of those who was like, okay, we're just gonna go left and another left uh -huh. and another left. Right. <laughs> you know, like just- And genius. both of those, like they're both rapid fire, they're both rapid fire comics. Mm -hmm. Like they don't give you, they don't give you a chance to breathe. No, you know what I mean, no. they're like, it's, it's, it, they're gonna go, they're gonna go, and you got to keep up. Yeah, and that's the thing about comedy. Comedy is in theater. We have a saying, you know, like dying is easy, comedy is hard. 
you know? Uh, and in a, in say, I'm stealing this from our conversation with Ed a couple of weeks ago, Ed Mabry, in a slam poem, you got three minutes. You made them laugh at the beginning, you made them laugh somewhere in the middle and you made them laugh at the end, you're golden, right? But if you got three minutes of comedy and you only had three laughs, you suck, right? And so you have somehow created this entity that is now known as Tromedy, available on Amazon Prime anywhere. Uh, Tromedy, where you're able to blend your, your poems that look at real life shit, but also infuse that comedy in there, you know? And it's so beautifully done. I forgot where I heard it, but somebody was saying that like, they were sitting down to watch like some stand-up comedy and somehow that popped up and they were like, ah, I don't know if I wanna watch it. And then by the end of it, they were in tears because they were laughing and they were crying so hard and it just like hit, you know? So like, talk to us a little bit about like the creation of Tromedy because that that is like a, a golden little center, you know, of both worlds. It um It is, and it speaks true to like kind of how I am all the time. If, you know, if you talk to like my friends or if you have a long enough conversation with me, like it's, it's there's there's some heavy stuff that we're gonna like probably talk about, but I'm you know I'm, I'm there's gonna be like some sarcasm or something like tossed in the middle. Like there's gonna be some laughs in between. This is like it's life, right? You know what I mean? Like there there are these heavy moments and there's these bright moments and there's a lot of like ebbs and flows and ups and downs and so on and so forth. And I wanted to bring I wanted to continue to bring that to a to a stage. And um, it was crafted over time. I mean, I was on the road, I was touring, and uh, you know, if, if you're up and you're doing a 30 minute set, you know, it can't just be poems, at least not for me. Um, there's, there's funny stories, there's all these different segues and transitions and, um, and I like telling jokes, you know what I mean? I like sharing parts of my life with people. And so um, I've been wanting to do this for years and just didn't have the confidence. And my sister uh, is who actually pushed me into, into it. And she's like, you have to do it, you have to do it, you have to do it, we gotta do it like now. And so eventually I was just like, well, let me see if I can put together some material. Um, and I looked at what had, I had been working on over the last few years and it was all about mental health. You know, I was having my own struggles with depression and suicide. Um, and it had been a, a long time struggle for me. I mean, the first time I tried to commit suicide, I was 13 years old. And then there were like several attempts after that, all the way up until I, by the time I had my daughter, which was, I was, I was 19 then. Um, so I had all, and then, and then depression didn't just, just stop because I had kids. I just, um, I just found better ways to manage it over time. Uh, but there's, you know, there's all these, there's all these moments that happen in between and you learn to laugh at it later. You learn to laugh at it much, much, much later um, when, you know, now that you're alive to tell the story. And that's just the beauty in the human existence, right? This human experience that we're living is that, you know, you, you get to have all these experiences and then you live to tell it. Uh, and I wanted to do this in a way that was truest to myself. And that was through poetry and then and comedy. Yeah. And how, how was that received by uh, those closest to you, especially your family? So my mom and my, my grandmother, look, my grandmother's 85 years old. <laughs> she, she doesn't really understand technology or things anymore. You know what I mean? She's at that point. Um, she just, she knows I was on TV. <laughs> she knows I was on TV. Um, and then she forgets. And then I tell her again. And then she's excited all over again. <laughs> and then she forgets again and then I tell her and so it's like a big surprise for both of us every time um uh so she 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 doesn't she doesn't um she doesn't you know she doesn't think anything of it 
my mom got to see it and she was like, oh, you shared a lot. That's interesting. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, I do that from time to time. I hope that's okay, because it's on film. Mm. And she was like, well, it was really good. She, you know, my mom is pretty critical, but she's always been uh, proud of me for going after what I wanted and, and being so passionate about it. Um, she, you know, she, she had a bunch of dreams and she had kids and she kind of put all that stuff on the back burner and never went after any of these things. Um, and I know she kind of regrets that. And so she, her seeing me now pursue all these things that I love, I think she's kind of living vicariously through me. And so she's not always happy with all the creative decisions that I make, but I think she's very happy that I'm doing it. Um, she brags though, she brags about me all the time. And, so, and, and it's funny that the other person who's like super critical of me is my daughter. Uh, and I talk about fatherhood a lot. And she, you know, of course she's been to a few shows and, and whatnot, and she gets all embarrassed because I talk about her all the time. But then, and so I'm thinking that like, you know, she's not gonna care one way or another that I, that I made it on Amazon that I, or got, I got to Amazon. And um, so I told her, I was like, oh yeah, it's streaming now. Isn't that kind of cool? She's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> and then, uh, but then I heard her talking to her friends on the phone about how her dad's on TV. And I'm like, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Like you're just putting up a good front, but I appreciate that. <laughs> Keeps me humble. No, I think it's it's important that uh, you're able, especially on such a such a large platform like Amazon Prime, to put these conversations forward and talk about those things. Because I know that's one of the things that, like, when I was watching it, that really touched me is like knowing, like, okay, other people out there are experiencing the same things that I may be experiencing. You know, that we're not going through this alone. You know, that we aren't right. weird or outcasted or in some way you know, like shamed by the devil or whatever you want to put it on, you know, like it isn't an evil plague that's on us. This is a natural thing that a lot of people are experiencing. And to be able to put that forth, uh, takes a lot of strength, but also makes a lot of uh, impact and change that you may never know, you know, the number of lives that you've touched. So props to you on uh, being able to put that forth, you know. That part is is so huge to me, and and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to tackle such a heavy topic. And it's also that same I ideology is what got me into being like a teaching artist and working with students. Uh, and I've been I've been a teacher like in and out of the classroom for off and on for years, and now I'm just a full time teaching artist. Um, in addition to like traveling and whatever and doing other you know just other projects, but like that idea, like I knew what it felt to be depressed at 16, to be suicidal at 13, and you know, and, and to feel like I was the only one dealing with this, especially being in a family or coming from a culture that didn't talk about mental health, didn't talk about depression, didn't talk about suicide, didn't talk about any of those things. And so to now be, to be, again, to be allowed to tell the story, like I want to, I want to get in the classrooms and I want to get into like these youth organizations and sit and talk and, and kick it with these teens and show them how I use poetry to express myself in a way that I, that you know some of these kids didn't even know existed before um that's huge you know what i mean that keeps people alive yeah it's you know let's talk about you know something you, you mentioned earlier the family family side of that uh one of my favorite poem, poems of yours is um about kissing your son um and i've heard you do it twice and it's great uh, two questions on that. One, what experience are you drawing from? And then secondly, uh, how necessary is that poem in 2020? 
Um, what experience is what experiences am I drawing from? Nobody kissed me, Eddie. All right. <laughs> no one gave me any kisses. <laughs> I needed kisses as a kid. No one gave them to me. <laughs> um, my uh, my my dad wasn't around. I you know I grew up fatherless. I was raised by a single mom, um, who was I won't say she was like like really. I mean she was she was fairly strict, um, but she wasn't that affectionate. And you know we learned later. My brother and I learned later that she she wasn't because she didn't want us to be soft she didn't want us to grow up being like too soft um it didn't work I like <laughs> it didn't work I was like I was like a crybaby and like I was you know what I mean like I was like you know in my feelings all the time I grew up to write poetry like so the kisses <laughs> um uh, she didn't want us to grow up too soft. She wanted us to be, you know, men, you know, you gotta be a man's man, you know what I mean? And so like, she thought that that was how you did it. She didn't want us to, to be coddled all the time. And so I don't, I don't blame her for it. She, she just, she was doing what she thought was right at the time. Um, but I, I needed it. I wanted it. I was like, I, I was an affectionate kid and I wanted that affection, particularly from my parents. Um, and it was rough not not having that around. And all my friends had their fathers, you know what I mean? Um, all came from two-parent households and, you know what I mean? And so, and here I am feeling like this outcast that didn't, you know, that just, you know, I missed the boat or I, I was just, you know, that unfortunate or nobody wanted me or there were all these things that were kind of running through my head. And so when I, I, I promised myself at like 10, when I was like 10 years old, I knew I wanted to be a father. I knew I wanted to have, I wanted, I wanted to be married with kids and a big house and a picket fence. Like at 10, I knew I, this, this is what it's going to be. And um, so now with my kids, I'm like, they're going to get all these hugs. They're going to get all these, you're going to get all these kisses <laughs> before school. When you get back, you get, you getting all the kisses for all the ones that I didn't get. <laughs> yeah. That, um, I, I'm just going to say, I think that's, hella important you know in showing not just physical you know emotional but physical affection to to your children and your family and maybe it's because you know i come from a mexican background where we just kiss everybody twice one once on each cheek both when you arrive and when you leave you know so uh yeah props to you for showing that vulnerability i remember you doing that piece at a what was it new pics selling fried Fayetteville. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was just so perfectly timed against B Shatter, bless his heart, but you just like, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you ended up winning though. It was, um, uh, it's a piece that speaks to the truth in a lot of men, you know, who may put, put up a uh, very tough exterior, but you know, like want to be able to show this love. And I think that's right. what a lot of your poetry does is it gives people um the uh i don't want to say opportunity but the uh it's the word i'm looking for um acceptance the they're able to you know right permission. It, gives, it gives people the permission the access you know what i mean and access is like is super important i mean for years and eddie to your to your uh second question which i i, for, I totally for, i totally blanked on it but like why is it important in 2020 and it's because um here we are you know you know, 20 years after the turn of the century, like, and we're still talking about men not being able to, like, 
vocalize how they feel or men not being able to show their emotions or, or be vulnerable. Um, and so there's all this stigma that's associated with it that we've never, we've never really broken down those layers. Like we need to hear more men talking about like, I'm gonna show my son affection, right? My son, my son is a human being who deserves to be loved and, and, and deserves kisses and hugs and, and encouragement. And like my, you know, my, my kids, regardless of gender, deserve, they deserve that, right? They didn't ask to be here. I, I brought them into this world. I deserve them to give them the best that, that I can give, especially emotionally. Yeah. Um, it's a huge, it's huge. And especially coming from like my aesthetic, you know what I mean? Like being like a black man in America, like you feel like you have to be on guard, fist balled up all the time. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I gotta go hard. I gotta, you know what I mean? I gotta go hard all the time. And it's, it's a fallacy and it's, it's unrealistic. And I don't wanna be that. <laughs> I don't wanna be that all the time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't wanna feel like, I don't wanna feel like I have to, you know what I mean? Like wear baggy clothes and listen to rap music all the time. I like country music and musicals. Like, I wanna be able to like enjoy that just as much. <laughs> I was a kid, kid too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? I've seen hairspray like like seven times. Like, like I want to be able to say that comfortably and not feel in some type of way about it or it affect my mask or emasculate me. You know what I mean? Like we, when we talk about masculine, uh, uh, um, like masculinity being like fragile, uh, it's because there's so many things that break it. No matter, you know what I mean? Any, there's, there's the very like short list of what makes you a man and anything outside of that emasculates you and it's a dumb it's a it's the dumbest thing i've ever heard mm -hmm. it's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous especially in 2020. yeah i, I can relate out no i have a son too and he's uh when he was i don't know younger 10 12 something um i actually all as long as as, as long as he's been walking i've been kind of guiding him by the top of his head until he got too tall you know um or just like, just so he wouldn't just walk out in front of the street or, you know, run anywhere. I'll be like, you know, and sometimes I just kind of like mess with his hair a little bit. Um, and then one day um, I didn't do it for some reason. And he got my hand and he put it on top of his head. Like, this is where, this is where it belongs right now, you know, kind of thing. Uh, our kids are, are asking for that kind of affection or that we can maintain that kind of affection. Yeah. I don't know that they care so much about the whole masculine vibe or, you know, my culture is machismo, right? That, 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 right. that hurts us a lot. Um, and uh, no, I hug, on, I hug on them all the time too. And that's the way, you know, my dad wasn't as much on that, but I have some uncles. My uncles were like that. My uncles were always greeting you with hugs and, and putting their arms around you uh, and, and just like being, being affectionate as men. And it was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's a very necessary thing. Um, this has been a very necessary conversation. Roscoe, you are a very necessary voice out in this world right now. Uh, so we really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with us and with the world. Um, um, so thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Um, and it would be our pleasure and our honor if you would close us out with just one more poem. Um, sure, I would love to. Um, cool. Um, so, um, actually, actually, I tell you what, in the, in the, in the theme of, of, um, fatherhood and affection and, uh, um, uh, actually, uh, I did, I did a piece about my daughter earlier, so it, I feel like it's only right to end with a piece about my son. 
So uh, uh, here we go. I kiss my son on the forehead, on the cheek. He's a, he's a baby right now. But I'm gonna kiss him the first time he pees in a potty all by himself. At six, I'm gonna kiss his scraped knee when a bike ride becomes a bull ride. He'll get a peck atop of his head every day before school. At, at 12, I'm gonna kiss him the first time a person he puppy loves dogs him. And when a flood breaks from his eyes, I will kiss him dry at 17. I'm gonna kiss him before prom and tell him he's gorgeous. Give him a smooch right before he graduates. I kiss my son because, well, it's because kids are always kind of embarrassed when their parents kiss them. And I just really, really love embarrassing my children. I kiss my son because I kiss my daughter. That's not a poem. We're expected to kiss daughters. We're cradle. We're expected to kiss, cradle, coddle, give them all the affection, but not our sons. Now we punch our sons in the shoulder, in the chest. You man up. You go hard. You be a stone, a wall, but not like Stonewall Rebellion, 1969, because that would be gay. And you know how fathers be so scared for their sons to be gay, to be anything different than their assumptions, because we are lied to. We are lied to. We are lied to and told that gay means sensitive, or that sensitive means soft, or that soft means feminine, or that feminine means weak. Fathers are expected to chisel their sons into gargoyles, these sculptured monsters, and make concrete of their depression or their sexuality, make their emotions a fluid, forgotten center. I kissed my son because my mother couldn't kiss me, because my mom had to be a dad. I kissed my son because my dad was never around to kiss me or hold me or tell me I'm beautiful. Not that he would have anyway. I mean, he comes from a time where manliness gets cut from affection and patriarchy has always pulled the strings, making men these hyper-masculine marionettes who, who balded their fists or grabbed their crotch or try to puppeteer women. Masculinity, so fragile, but held in the hands of men who only crush and violate, but not my son. He will not grow up in that crater of manhood I am still climbing out of, where the threat of emasculation is an earthquake looming around every shaky compliment, where even a hug is a tremor, where I love you is a fault line dividing men where fathers won't even embrace their son's cheek for fear of cracking his face like crust, where the male ego gets built like a castle, but can crumble with just a kiss. Very nice, very nice, very nice. Roscoe Burnham, everybody. Roscoe very necessary, Burnham. necessary poetry. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for being here with us this past hour. It's been a phenomenal conversation, even if there were eight minutes of it where I had no idea what you guys were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for everybody that's tuning in and is interested in Roscoe's uh, work, he does have books. Uh, he's got one called Chrysalis Under Fire. He's got another one called Fighting Demons on Page. He's got another one called God, Love, Death, and Other Synonyms, which is probably my favorite book title of all times, by the way. This one's available on- I was so scared to name it that. I was like, oh, it's too long. I can't name it that. And then my friends were like, I don't know, it's too long. And I was like, and then my publisher was like, do you have a title yet? And I was like, uh, yes, here. And I gave him 10 words. God, Love, <laughs> Death, and Other Synonyms. Like, <laughs> such a good title. This one's available on 310 Brown Street, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, if you want more information on uh, Roscoe and his work, 
He's got a website, roscoeb.webs.com. That's in the comment section. You can also just tip the poet. Motherfucker, tip the poet, okay? Tip the poet. Um, he's got his Cash App and his Venmo, which are available. Cash App, Roscoe B, Venmo, Roscoe-Burnham's. It's all in the comments, people. Support artists. We're all going through it right now. We're all in this together. Uh, and this man has clearly done phenomenal work throughout his his excellent, career. Excellent work. And what if? Excellent, excellent Everything, work. everything that I have is available on Amazon. Everything that I have is available on Amazon. So all the books plus Tromedy, it's all available on Amazon. It's right at your fingertips. That's right, go watch Tromedy. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a good hour yes. of your life that, you know, have a couple of glasses of wine, you know, you're gonna need it, you know? You'll, get uh, through, you'll laugh, you'll cry, I agree. you'll all sorts of things. Rope. Does the, Roscoe, do you get a little bit, a little bit of money every time somebody watches it, or is that how it works? So yeah, so you know, I, I guess we, I wish we would have talked about this a little bit earlier. I know people have been asking about like how the whole Amazon thing works, but yes, I get, um, I, I get a little bit of very little. <laughs> I get a very little money for every like few minutes that gets streamed, that kind of thing. All right, so that's what I'm telling everybody else. Before you go to bed tonight, if you have Amazon Prime, first of all, watch it before you go to bed, and then leave it on and watch it one more time. All right. Yeah, put it on everybody redo, do that and just keep doing it <laughs> over and over again. All right. That's how you do it. That's how you do that's it with friends. Get Roscoe's kids to college. All right. That's, that's that's yes, please. <laughs> yes, you can do it on uh, Apple Music too with some of our friends that we mentioned, Tank and the Bangas. Just like put that shit on repeat and put the volume all the way down. You know, like let it go. So. Yeah. Fuck yeah! Thank you so much, Roscoe. Thank you, Eddie, again for a phenomenal week. We do have quite a lineup of people that are coming up uh, for our upcoming episodes of Words and Shit. Next week, we've got uh, David Bowles. Right. David Bowles is an excellent, uh, not only a poet, but a writer. Um, he's known all over for, for a lot of his analysis uh, of current writing as well and what's going on in, 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 the, in the literary media. Uh, so we're looking forward to that conversation. But then there's like three other people in the month that you people want to talk about. I want to talk about all of them. We're, we're trying to feature in June uh, queer writers. So David Bull is coming up next week on June 4th. Then on June 11th, the day before my birthday, I'm just throwing that out there, the day before my birthday, Ebony Stewart is going to be joining us here on Words and Shit. Then the following week on the 19th, we got San Antonio poetry legend, Anel Flores, that's joining us. And then we're going to close out the night with Northwestern poet Roxy Allen. It is gonna be a phenomenal lineup of poets that uh, we're gonna be having conversations with. And this is just gonna keep on going. So um, I'm super excited about uh, what this has done. I know Eddie, you know, like I, these conversations have been truly insightful and phenomenal, not just for us as hosts, I think, uh, for also the poets that have, all, that have joined us and for everybody that's been able to watch. So uh, thank you, Roscoe, for giving us your time. Um, thank, thank you. Uh, thank you, Eddie, again. And, um, and thank you, Jimmy. And, uh, sure, thank you, me. Whatever. <laughs> Find it. It's on the Blah Poetry Spot. The Blah Poetry Spot is the Facebook oh, group. Uh, where you can find it um, on Facebook. It is posted live and it will be there in perpetuity. So what you said now will never be erased. Uh, it's there forever. Uh, but thank you guys. You guys ominous at all. <laughs> Woo! Take care of yourself, everybody. Until next week. Uh, uh, take care of yourself over in Virginia. 
I hope summer treats you better than it treats you. I think so. I'm sure you're not jealous of our weather right now. So. Good night, y'all. I appreciate y'all. See y'all later. Good night. Good night.